You are listening to Therefore Pay Attention, a sermon from Hebrews 1 and 2, taught by Pastor Rick Bino in the spring of 2008. And now, Pastor Rick. Well, good morning once again. It's great to see you here. Thank, for, thank you for joining us in our time of worship and of taking of the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to begin today, I'm going to offer up to you three scenarios, three pictures of sort of uh, everyday kind of experiences. I'm going to ask you to remember those three scenarios, remember those three pictures, because we're going to come back to them. So here is scenario number one. You're chatting with a friend, and your friend tells you that he was in a near-miss auto accident the other week. He feels, though, that right at the last moment, some force pushed his car enough just to the side to miss oncoming traffic. It was my guardian angel, he declares. Ever since then, he has prayed to his guardian angel, asking for protection and guidance. He tells you, I've never really been that spiritually alert before, but now I almost feel like I see angels everywhere. I seek their guidance and their comfort. And you think to yourself, my friend has become very spiritual. Scenario number two. A knock comes to your door. You open it up, and there stand two Jehovah Witnesses hoping to talk to you about their beliefs. You invite them in, and you begin to talk with them. They seem knowledgeable about what they believe, and they seem to talk a lot about Jesus. Not everything lines up with your understandings, but they seem sincere and that they truly believe what they are saying. And so you say to yourself, Jehovah's Witnesses are very spiritual. And finally, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Your kids are up doing homework or they're in nap time. And you snuggle in with a cup of coffee and a muffin, ready to get your daily dose of Oprah. Today's topic, spiritual energy. She, looks at, she sits on her couch, she looks out at you, and she says, like harmony, Symmetry, and even genius, this invisible force, spiritual energy, is a mystery whose uplifting power must be encountered to be believed. But once it happens, revealing a glimpse of your awesome potential, it can never again be denied. And you say to yourself, Oprah is very spiritual. Today, my friends... In a gusto of sermon-giving recklessness, I'm going to attempt to address angels, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oprah, and the book of Hebrews all in the same sermon. This has never been attempted before. It's the pastor's equivalent to jumping a canyon on a motorcycle. It's going to take concentration and dedication from all of us, precision timing, So now we're going to just grip the handlebars, close our eyes, and hope this whole thing doesn't end in a spectacular wreck. So keep those three scenarios in mind. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Today's text is Hebrews 1, verse 4, through verse 4 of chapter 2. Hebrews 1, 4 through 2, 4. Hebrews 1, 4 through 2, 4. As you turn there, I'd like to 
orient you again and remind you of sort of the overall approach that we're going to be taking with the book of Hebrews, the overall theme of Hebrews. And if you remember, I brought this picture in last week. So let's remind us of the overall theme using this picture. This is Don Quixote, and it's by Pablo Picasso. And last week, I talked about how this thing that I hold in my hand is not worth all that much. It's not worth a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or even a hundred dollars. It's probably no longer even worth ten dollars. Even though it is a Picasso. And the reason it's not worth anything, the reason it's not worth the 40 million, 50 million, 105 million that Picassos get when they sell is because this is not the real thing. This is not the real Picasso. This is a copy, it's a pattern, it's a shadow of the real Picasso. So this has very little worth. What has worth is the real Picasso drawing and series of drawings of Don Quixote, not the copies. And that is analogous to the argument that we'll find throughout a majority of the book of Hebrews. Because the writer is going to argue, or does argue, that Jesus is the real thing. And that other aspects that the Jewish listeners were, list- were used to, prophets, angels, Moses, traditions like the laws, the sacrifice, the priesthood, the tabernacle, that all those things were shadows or copies or patterns of Christ. And now that Christ had come, they need to embrace Christ because the Christ is the real thing and not the copy. And so, if I were to have this Picasso here and the real Picasso Don Quixote, and I could only keep one, you would say to me, well, don't keep the copy and throw away the original because it's the original that has value. You keep the original or you keep the real thing and you throw away the copy or you move along from the copy. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying about Christ. He's saying the real thing has come. Christ has come. He has arrived. So don't move away from Christ back into those things that were copies foreshadowing Christ when you can be and have Christ. And so the whole argument around the book of Hebrews is this idea of moving forward into Christ away from the copies. And the copies have value. The images, the patterns, the shadow all has value, and we'll talk about that along the way. But when you have access to the real thing, as we do with Christ, then we need to be moving forward towards the real thing and embracing the real thing. And so with that established once again, you remember that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer has argued that Jesus was greater than the prophets of the past, And here we'll see the writer establishing that Jesus is superior to the angels. So look with me at chapter 1. We'll look at verses 4 through 14. Chapter 1, 4 through 14. So Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The author does something in these verses that we're going to see him do frequently throughout the rest of the book. And that is he takes Old Testament and the, takes the Old Testament teachings and looks at the Old Testament and sees in the Old Testament patterns and images and shadows of the Christ that was to come. And so he'll use the Old Testament frequently to say, look at the pattern set up in the Old Testament to point us to Christ. And he does so here frequently, mostly from the book of Psalms in this case. And he does make three major assertions about why Jesus is greater than the angels. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, Jesus' identity is greater than the angels. He says, what angel was called God's son? No angel is called God's son. That is unique to Jesus. Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. He is not the same as angels, and his relationship to the Father is not the same as the angels' relationship to the Father. He is God's son. And therefore, he has a unique connection with God that is unlike the angels. And because of this aspect of his relationship with the Father, the Son has been given the right to sit on the throne. And as the King of heaven and earth, he is rightly to be worshipped. So we could say our second point, Jesus has a greater position than the angels. He has a greater identity and a greater position. Jesus should be worshipped. Angels should not. The angels, in fact, worship Jesus. It's interesting, we often try to worship angels, but all the record we have of angels being worshipped in scriptures, they always say, don't worship me. They always stop people from worshipping them. So it's almost like the angels understand who's supposed to be worshipped, but sometimes we don't. There's one instance in Uh, book of Revelation where the Apostle John is after he's seen Christ and all these visions this angel comes to him and he just sort of throws himself down at this angel's feet it says quote he fell down to worship at the feet of the angel but the angel said do not do it I am a fellow servant worship God and this is the testimony of the whole of scripture that Jesus is to be worshipped that God is to be worshipped that angels are not to be worshipped And so Jesus has a greater identity than the angels, a greater position than the angels, and in the long section, 7 through 13, we find that Jesus has a greater function than the angels. If you look in verse 7, you'll see that angels are commanded by God. They're They're sometimes winds or flames of fire. Whatever God commands the angels to do, they do. They are servants. But then the rest of that section doesn't talk about Jesus as a servant, but rather talks about Jesus as the king. He sits on the throne. He is in charge. His reign will be forever. So Jesus' function is that of ruler. The angel's function is that of servant. 
servants to the ruler. And so the function that Jesus has, the function of ruling, the function of overseeing, the function of being king is reserved for Jesus. And so with all that in mind, let's return to our first scenario. Remember our friend? Near-miss car accident. Felt like there was an angelic force that pushed him from being killed. And so he's very into angels now. And there's a part of that scenario that we can embrace. There's a part of that scenario that we can affirm. Look at verse 14. The writer says, Are not all angels ministering spirits? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Well, who inherits salvation? We do. God's people. People inherit salvation. So angels have been sent to take care and serve God's people. And so angels clearly have a role in the redemption drama. But it is not as Savior. And it is not as King. Angels do not sit at the right hand of the Father, but they are commissioned to render service to the followers of Jesus. So there's a great encouragement here that we are not left alone in the spiritual forces with the spiritual forces that are against us. We know that there's spiritual forces against us, but there's also spiritual forces working for us. I've mentioned up here before that when I pray for my kids at school, it's frequently with this sort of imagery of God bring angels to surround them. And protect them. I have pictures of, of my, the school bus surrounded by angels to make sure they make it to school. And that their emotions and that their, their, their hearts are protected. That God's ministering angels would, would surround them and care for them. But we must be clear on this, and I want to make sure we all get it. Praying for angelic intervention is not the same as praying to angels. You follow me? We pray to Christ that he would take his servants and use them for our good. But we don't pray to the angels. And you think about it just naturally with this passage. The angel, you don't bother praying to the angels because they don't decide what they get to do. You can pray to an angel all that you want, but the angel follows the commands of the king. And so we have access, remember, we have access to go right to the king. Why would you go to the servants when you can go to the king? And so are angels active? Absolutely. Do angels help care for us? Absolutely. It says right here, they are ministering spirits sent to serve those of us who inherit salvation. So angels are active and real and they care for us in our lives. If you were to come up to me and say, I think I had an angelic encounter, I would say, tell me about it. I wouldn't question whether you're a little nutty or something. I would say, no, that's awesome. Talk to me about how you saw God work through angels in your life. But if you were to come to me and say, I now have a guardian angel I pray to, I'd be like, whoa. You need to keep praying to Christ that he would provide protection, that he would provide angelic encouragement, but you don't pray to angels. There's a great distinction in this passage between angels and Christ, between the servants and the king. I should also note that in that same passage, it distinguishes Christ from the angels, but it also distinguishes us from the angels, right? We're the ones inheriting salvation. So as angelic as you are, and you are angelic, you do not become angels. It's a popular folklore. You know, in cartoons, someone dies, 
and they get a halo and wings and a white robe and they sort of float off as an angel. Well, the good news is is that the, the future for us as followers of Christ is even better than that. I don't have time to get into all that today, sorry. But the future for us is even better than that. But we want to get out of this mindset that when we die, we become angels. Angels are created beings that are different from humans. Matter of fact, there's some parts of Scripture that indicate that the angels long to understand Christ as we are able to understand Christ because of the salvation we were able to receive through him. So let's not kind of get confused into thinking that we become angels. Now, we will exist with the angels... There's images in Revelation in particular where there's elders and followers of Christ and there's angels all in the same place worshiping God. So I think we'll hang out with angels, which is kind of cool. But we don't become angels. So we neither worship them nor do we hope to become them, but we can be encouraged by verse 14 that they exist and they are working on our behalf. But I don't want us to think that this confusion between Christ's And angels is just limited to those who say, well, I'm an angel worshiper. Because you might not run across a lot of people who say that. Although you should listen. I encourage you to be listeners. Because in conversations with people, when angels come up, there's some confusion about it that maybe you can help clarify. But I want to move to our second scenario. You're hanging out at your house. A Jehovah's Witness comes by. You you say, I'll chat with them. You start chatting for a while. They talk a lot about God. They talk a lot about Jesus. They're obviously passionate about their faith. And you start to think, well, maybe, maybe they believe the same thing I believe. Maybe Jehovah's Witnesses and I, maybe we're all on the same team after all. Maybe they have a good understanding of Christ after all. Particularly in relation to this passage, I want you to note these three quotes from Watchtower literature, which is the literature of the Jehovah's Witness. First, Jesus Christ, whom we understand from the scriptures to be Michael, the archangel. Secondly, from 1995, The foremost angel, both in power and authority, is the archangel, Jesus Christ, also called Michael. And lastly, this is just from their website this week. Jesus was a created being, just as angels were spirit beings created by God. Neither the angels nor Jesus had existed before their creation. The writer of Hebrews takes great pains to tell us that this is not right. The whole section says, no, Jesus is different than the angels. Jesus is separate from the angels. Jesus is distinct from the angels. And so we are not able to affirm a Jehovah's Witness theology that says Jesus was an angel. Because that would deny the whole argument here in the first chapter of Hebrews. Now, there's other significant issues I might add um, to, the, to the JW doctrinal positions, but I wanted to point this one out because of its relevance to this chapter in Hebrews. So I encourage you, if you ever are in the conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, ask about Jesus. Ask about Jesus' identity and Jesus' nature and Jesus' relationship to angels. And maybe through that line of dialogue, you can communicate some truth about the, Jesus being a distinct uh, the, the distinct, I don't want to say being, just being distinct from an angel, from the angels. And so now we're ready to move on to our third scenario with Oprah. 
To return to my leaping over a canyon on a motorbike analogy, I've hit the ramp with angels, I've floated over the canyon with Jehovah's Witnesses, and now I'm going to try to stick the landing. But the landing is always the most difficult part, and for some of you, I can mess with angels, and I can talk about Jehovah's Witnesses all I want, but don't be messing with Oprah. So I understand the danger of what I'm about to do. Some of you are saying this, this is a guaranteed like front flip over the handlebars with like your own bike running you over. But you know, once you're in the air, you've got to land, so here we go. If you would turn your attention to chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. If you glance through the first sentence of chapter 2, you're going to see a key word for us in that sentence, and the key word is, therefore. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer organizes his, his book around a series of therefores. He'll make an argument. The argument might be a few verses, it might be a few chapters. He'll make this argument, and then he'll say, therefore, this is how you should live. Therefore, this is how it should be applied. Therefore, here are the implications of what I have to say. Okay? So, if you actually glance in the front of your bulletin, you'll see that I've written out for you the sermon series titles. The book of Hebrews is oriented around ten major teachings, and it's a corresponding therefores. And so the ten major teachings of this series will be based on the argument and then the therefore that comes after the argument. And so what we have here is we've looked at the argument. Jesus has appeared to angels, and here's why, and he gave us reasons. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to say, therefore, here's what you need to be careful of, here's what you need to know, here's what you need to, how you need to respond. So we've heard the argument, now we're going to hear the therefore in verses 2, 1 through 4. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also testified to it, by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer says that the appropriate response to these truths about Christ being superior is that we must pay attention to the message brought to us by Christ. Now, it was Jewish tradition that the law had been brought to Moses through the work of angels, that angels had a significant role in communicating the law to Moses, which was probably true. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, if the law that was brought by angels, lesser beings, was binding, if if when the law came through angels and it was binding, you got punished, you got in all kinds of trouble if you violated the law, how much more are we responsible to follow the, the, the great salvation that was brought by Christ? How much greater is the message of Christ? How much greater is our responsibility to respond to Christ as the greater deliverer of a greater message? So the whole argument would run something like this. Angels are spirit beings and serve Jesus. But they are not Jesus. 
And only Jesus can bring this great salvation that humanity desperately needs. Therefore, pay attention that you do not drift away from the great salvation that only can be provided by Christ. That you don't drift away into something that is spiritual, but less than the great salvation of Christ. Let me say it this way. Being spiritual is not the same as being saved. Being spiritual is not the same as being saved. Which brings us to Oprah. Last month, Oprah Winfrey, who's considered by many to be the most influential woman in the world, she began a 10-week-long online course based on a book that she's been selling on her, you know, her book club thing, She's made it into a 3.5 million copy bestseller. It's by a man called Eckhart Tolle called A New Earth. And she's offered 10 weeks of watching one and a half hour, 10 one and a half hour sessions of her chatting with Eckhart Tolle about this book. A few weeks ago, they had their first webcast. It's online. It's a web class. And 1.5 million people have listened to it. And some of you have as well. I have too. And though both the book and the Eckhart-Oprah conversations frequently speak about Christ and Scripture, their discussion is not in line with the superior work that is taught in Scripture and in Hebrews. Rather, it is a relativistic mix of self-made spirituality mixed with relativism, mixed with what Oprah calls a Christ consciousness. Tolle in that first Discussion discourages anyone from saying that only our belief is true. And Oprah concurs with this. She says, There is no conflict between Jesus' teaching, which is purely spiritual, and any religion. She goes on to say that there are many names that one might give to what she calls God. You could call it energy, or consciousness, or life. This theology of Oprah that she is pushing in this online class is nothing new. Since the beginning of the year on her XM radio station, she has offered daily courses on a book called A Course in Miracles. She didn't write it, but she has the writer do segments on her XM radio station. The writer of A Course in Miracles says this, There is no sin, and warns readers not to, quote, make the mistake of clinging to the old rugged cross, unquote. Now, my goal is not to rip Oprah. I don't know her heart, and I will not presume to judge her. But I do know what she says, and I do know what books that she pushes on her listeners, and we can evaluate those. And the reason I want to focus on it in particular is because of the word drift that's in chapter 2. Because one of the greatest dangers of drifting, one of the greatest temptations to drift is when you're being bombarded with a spirituality that asks you, that you, or tells you you can include Christ in it. You don't have to give up Christ. You just add him to these other ideas. You add him to the great energy. He's part of the great energy. And so we go, oh, that sounds very spiritual. And before we know it, we've begun to drift. Whenever, there's, 
we live in a culture where lots of spiritual ideas abound, and many of them do not sound blatantly anti-Christian. And so we hear angels and Jehovah and spiritual life and spiritual energy, and we say, well, that sounds pretty good. But that's exactly what the therefore in this chapter warns us against. It says we must pay attention that we are not drifting away. Do not drift away on the flow of something that sounds so spiritual, that sounds so empowering, but is really less than what Christ has to offer. It's a temptation and it's a, and it's a, and it's a pull, this flow, this drifting away from the great salvation is something that every one of you faces somehow. Maybe you never watch Oprah, but you know what? You have some co-worker who's saying, you know, all the religions are the same. Aren't all the religions the same? And a part of you goes, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe they're all going to the same place. To which the writer of Hebrews would say, no, do not give up the great salvation of Christ and go back to some vague spirituality, angel worship, or energy worship, or whatever it might be called. Likely there is some friend or coworker or book or TV personality or something in your life that's influence, influencing you into thinking that there are many valid ways to God or, or making you think that Christianity teaches the same as every other religion or that, that what's most important is the spirituality you find in yourself. Someone is telling you this, and there's the pull, there's the drift that can happen so easily. But the writer of Hebrews is explicit. Hold on to the great salvation that is only found in Christ. And so I'm not telling you to boycott Oprah. Feel free to watch Oprah. But I'm telling you that when you hear her say, quote, there couldn't possibly be only one way. Does God care about your heart or whether you called his son Jesus? When you hear her say that, you need to pay attention that you do not drift, that you are anchored to the great salvation of Christ. And I'm not telling you to avoid conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses or with any other religion, but I'm telling you that when you hear someone say, as the Watchtower group says, clearly, although Jesus is mighty in power and divine in nature, the Bible does not portray him as an object of worship. You need to pay attention that you do not drift from the great salvation of Christ. And I'm not telling you to deny the wonder and the power of angels, but I'm telling you that when you hear someone say, as this book, Angels 101, says, if you would like to hear from your angels more often, then talk with them more often. Share your dreams, your disappointments, your fears, worries, concerns, and joys with them. Tell them everything. When you hear that, you need to pay attention and be careful that you do not drift away. We must stay anchored, as the writer of Hebrews encourages to the great salvation that can only come through Christ. May God bless our time in his word today.